Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss last night's attack on the Kirsch Bridge, bring you updates from the counter-offensive, and introduce a series of stories from The Telegraph on Ukraine's missing children. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 17th of July. One year and 143 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by foreign correspondent James Kilmer, senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant, senior technology reporter Gareth Caulfield, and deputy foreign editor Louis Emmanuel. I started by asking James for the latest updates from Ukraine. Hi, David. As far as uh, news from uh, Ukraine is concerned, obviously the biggest story today is this. Uh, apparent drone attack on the Crimea Bridge, uh, which connects the peninsula with mainland uh, Russia. Uh, as everyone on the podcast knows, we've covered this uh, bridge in detail. It was attacked last October. It's one of Putin's pet projects, and he's promised all sorts of hell and damnation to anyone who attacks it. It now appears that it was attacked by two waterborne drones at 3 a.m. this morning. Pictures clearly show there was some confusion originally about whether this was a drone attack or a missile attack. The Ukrainians have said they're watching with interest, but it clearly something has hit the base of the bridge and destroyed one of the legs. Uh, It's partly collapsed. Road traffic has been stopped across the bridge, although an adjacent bridge which carries railway, uh, a railway line is still continuing. That is the, that's the headline news. It also importantly comes, and this plays into the psychology of the Ukrainian meddling and how they've dealt with this war. It comes exactly a year after Dmitry Medvedev, a former Russian president and the deputy head of uh, the Russia's Security Council, said that um, anyone who attacks, uh, attacks um, Crimea, it'll be judgment day for them. So there's kind of this meddling psychosis again. Medvedev has already come out with a tough statement Putin's having a, an emergency meeting about the attack at seven o'clock in Moscow tonight. So uh, we're going to have to wait around for that, see what he says. Uh, in other news, there's been another column of Wagner mercenaries arriving into Belarus from Russia. Uh, this is the second or third column. Second major column, third. Uh, there's been three columns. The first one was quite small, but this is the second major one in the last week or so. Um, they've headed to a base in central Belarus, 
where the um, the authorities there have, have set up for them. Lukashenko, Alexander Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, has said that he has he, he wants to learn from Wagner's the Wagner mercenaries' experience of fighting Ukraine around Bakhmut and Donbass. As we know, that they um, they uh, claim to have captured the entire of Bakhmut uh, city in Donbass after an eight-month siege in May, the first Kremlin battlefield victory for about a year. Um, the arrival of the Belarus of the Wagner mercenaries in Belarus has obviously set alarm bells off in neighbouring countries. Belarus borders the European Union; it shares borders with Lithuania and Poland and 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 Latvia. And they've all said they've all asked NATO for extra security uh, measures, etc. And Poland has already sent an, an extra detachment of a thousand soldiers to its border. Uh, when I was writing up this story over the weekend, several, a couple of iterations of it, one of the Wagner mercenary sort of aligned telegram channels was poking fun at Polish, teasing them about smelling fried food, and they're, they're running scared. They're more scared of Wagner mercenaries than they are of nuclear uh, Russia's nuclear arsenal. If you remember, Russia's also posted some nuclear weapons in Belarus. First time it's posted nuclear weapons overseas in a, in a foreign country since the mid-1990s. So Belarus was an initial launch pad for, for the Kremlin's invasion of, of, of uh, Ukraine in February last year, but it's also becoming increasingly militarised now. The Belarusian army is staying out of the conflict. Lukashenko relies on them to maintain his stranglehold over over Belarus and doesn't want to commit them, commit them to a um, into battle, but we've seen more and more Russian equipment, soldiers training in Belarus, and now the role of of, of hundreds of Wagner mercenaries. So far, we we think there's less than a thousand, a few hundreds arrived, but Wagner channels have again said it could, as many as eight and a half thousand could arrive, which is uh, a small army. Um, in other news, quickly, we've had the, uh, the the break of this grain deal. So the Kremlin has announced it's not going to extend this grain deal, which had been seen as so vital for getting supplies of, of food to Africa, Middle East and, and Southeast Asia. Uh, it was negotiated by the UN in, in July last year. and It's been extended several times since then. Now, the Kremlin has said that it will only extend the deal uh, whereby uh, it allows tankers into Ukrainian ports to pick up grain in return for inspecting them um, be, um, before they dock. Uh, it wants to expect them for weapons, another another kit that it considers contraband. Um, but it has said it will only extend the deal if um, a, a Russian bank is, is allowed back onto the SWIFT international banking system and an ammonia pipeline is reopened between central... Uh, Russia and uh, Ukraine. Ammonia is, is part of a fertilizer, and it's it's, a, it's an important export for Russia. Uh, the, the 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 banking, the clampdown on it, on its international banking reach is is really been troublesome for, for for Russian business. So it's demanding these concessions. These are highly unlikely to be given. The Ukrainians and international commentators and politicians have all said that uh, Russia is just uh, holding the world to ransom. Forty five countries reliant. Ukrainian grain and and they're going to go hungry, etc. And there's also been um, very important suggestions that while um, Russia is happy to block 
grain ships coming out of the Black Sea is at the same time developing another export route um, across the Caspian Sea to Iran. Now, I've discussed this before. This is a sort of a sea which is surrounded by non-NATO countries, countries that the uh, the West are very hard hard to influence, Iran, Russia, Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, and Kazakhstan. So essentially, this is a sort of NATO-free transit route that the Kremlin Kremlin and Tehran can use to send weapons to each other, grain and other kit. So this has been developed while, and, and the allegations that this has been developed while Russia and the Kremlin is happy to block the Black Sea boats. And then the last bit of news, which 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 listeners should, should really be aware of, is is the sackings of these of these generals in in Russia. Well, we've had one confirmed senior general sacked last week, named and sacked. The Wall Street Journal also reported that I think twenty eight had been called in. This is post the rebellion. This is this is the Kremlin trying to clamp down on dissent and the criticism of the Ministry of Defence. Uh, the Wall Street Journal also said that 28 other generals were called in and questioned, interrogated, and some, as we know, Sudovakin, the General Armageddon, hasn't been seen since releasing a very odd video on, on the night of key three weeks ago, three and a half weeks ago. But the Wall Street Journal said 28 other generals have been hauled in, interrogated, etc., and 15 or so have already been sacked. Over the weekend, and we couldn't report this because these are rumours on reasonably accurate telegram channels, but nothing official. Over the weekend, another couple of paratroop commanders, Russian paratroop commanders, were said to have been sacked after um, criticising Ministry of Defence. I can't go into any more details because we haven't got it confirmed. We're waiting, et cetera, et cetera. But if this is proved, if this is confirmed and, and proved, then there's a major systematic problem in the Russian military that is bubbling to surface with senior leaders beginning to openly criticise the Ministry of Defence. Thank you very much for those updates. James, it's really great to be joined by our Deputy Foreign Editor, Louis Emmanuel. Louis, we've got you on because the Foreign Desk is this week publishing a number of stories about the abduction of thousands of Ukrainian children. The first story went live this morning. It's an exclusive. Belarus abducts thousands of Ukrainian children. That's the headline. Can you tell us a little bit about, can you give us the top lines from today's story? Yeah, so um, the piece we're looking at today explores exactly how Belarus has abducted or illegally deported thousands of children from Ukraine, from occupied territory in Ukraine, to camps inside Belarus, in, and, and they're likely to be sent further into Russia to be adopted or fostered following this pattern that has emerged over the last year or so of Russia illegally deporting children from Ukraine. So we got hold of some, some numbers. We reckon about 2,150 children at least so far have been uh, deported into Belarus. Uh, and by autumn, it's estimated another, uh, sorry, a total of 3,000 uh, will be there. And we have identified and located about four uh, or five camps, temporary camps or holding facilities, at least, where a lot of these children are staying before they move on. And some of these camps, sources have been saying, involve some degree of military training, too. So that's the um, the summary of our first piece. As you say, it's a it's the first of a series this week looking a little bit deeper into these children's abductions or, or deportations which form the basis of these war crimes charges laid to President Putin earlier this year. 
Thank you very much, Louis. Can we be precise? This story obviously comes from Sofia Jan Verity Bowman and Natalia Vasilieva, our Russia correspondent. We'll be getting them all on to speak later in the week. What are we, the Telegraph, accusing or implicating Alexander Lukashenko of exactly? So essentially the opposition groups who've collated a lot of this information about these children and now submitted them to the, the International Criminal Court, the ICC, are accusing Lukashenko of war crimes. So we know quite a lot about uh, Vladimir Putin and his children's rights commissioner, Maria Lobova Belova, and how they've been involved in this mass deportation schemes uh, into Russia. Uh, but until now, known very little about what's happening in Belarus. And it looks like children are mostly being transferred through Belarus. But some of the, the head of the organization, which has, has investigated a lot of this stuff so far and submitted documents to the ICC, accused Lukashenko directly of war crimes. He says that this deportation is being, this is his quotes, precisely organised by Lukashenko. And this is a war crime and what he calls forcible displacement. Louis, could you just explain why you wanted the team to look into this area? And could you give us a bit of an idea of the stories to come in the rest of the week? Yeah, so um, I think the story in Russia is reasonably well known about how children are being deported from occupied territories and taken into to mainland Russia. But we first got wind of this Belarus stuff earlier this year. So it's something which has been not explored properly. And, and seen as Lukashenko, as James has already sort of spelled out, is becoming, you could say, increasingly significant, you know, taking delivery of nuclear weapons and hosting Wagner. His relationship with the Kremlin is definitely worth looking into. And this just shows, I guess, just how close they are and, and how tied up he is with this whole, um, these war crimes allegations. And the other thing that really led us to to, to poke around here is that I think the this 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 large scale deportation of children has been to a degree overlooked somewhat, and partly the reason is it's very very difficult to report on. And we hope this week will shed a bit more light on it. One piece which has just been published about an hour ago is speaking with some of the children, some of the few children who have managed to escape the system and arrive back into Ukraine with their families. And some of that's quite chilling. They describe exactly what happened to them while they were in these holding facilities or camps and exactly how they, they escaped, which which is quite fascinating. And then um, later in the week, we've also got some more detail. We're going to have a very detailed piece tomorrow. We're going to publish on the brainwashing element in a lot of these camps, the um, the levels the Russians go to what you call Russify a lot of these young children, the, um, the the altered textbooks they use to tutor them about history, for example, and in some rare cases, the kind of military elements in some of these camps. And then um, towards the end of the week, we'll be looking very closely at Maria Lavova Belova, Vladimir Putin's children's rights commissioner, who has also been accused by the ICC of war crimes and I can't tell you loads about it but we will be looking quite in depth at her life and her family and what we reveal does raise some very pertinent questions and also really has quite strong echoes on the kind of issues and complications with bringing all these people to justice through the courts. Thanks Louis. It's worth mentioning, of course, that the Belarusian government did not respond to a request for comment. Mr Lukashenko in June said that he had offered to Mr Putin to host children in Belarus. 
and the Belarusian leader said he has reached out to Putin and they agreed to fund the children's stay in Belarus from the state budget. We look forward to hearing from Verity, Sophia and Natalia later in the week, but thank you for giving us a bit of an overview of what we'll see coming out of the foreign desk. Can I go to Roland Oliphant? Roland, thank you so much for joining. What have you been looking at over the last few days? Right now I'm looking at the uh, at the drone attack on, on Sevastopol Harbour and this morning I woke up and saw that Russia had seized control of shares of Danon and, and Carlsberg and the kind of the former Moscow-based business reporter in me really kind of sat up at that. It's not necessarily shocking news in a way. We knew it was coming down the line. But it's another kind of milestone in the the real end, the real death of this kind of post-Soviet period of kind of free market Russia, as it were, this kind of 20, 30-year period in which there was a huge amount of investment into Russia, huge Western multinationals were investing there. And now this morning, the Russians have seized control of the, basically the the Russian operations of Bannon, that's the French yogurt maker, and Carlsberg. Carlsberg operates probably the biggest single beer firm on the Russian market. Um, And this is part of the decree issued by the Kremlin back in April, which basically warned that companies from quote-unquote unfriendly countries could, uh, could might have this coming, might have this kind of nationalization coming down the line. Carlsberg and Danon were both exploring options to sell their Russian operations. It wasn't something they could quickly do to just get out of the Russian market. But um, they had they were looking for buyers. They said they'd taken moves to isolate their, their Russian operations from the from their global operations, or before they can sell, the Kremlin's come in and done this, and that is going to probably alarm an awful lot of companies that have been put in kind of similar difficult situations by the war, quite honestly. Thanks, Roland. We'll go back to James in a minute to talk about some of the updates from the counteroffensive. But you mentioned there you've been looking at the this attack on Sevastopol Harbour. What can you tell us about that? Sorry, not on Sevastopol Harbour, on the Kirch Forgive me, forgive me, the Kirch Bridge. What have sorry. you seen there? I'm, I'm sorry. No, I am, I am, I am producing an analysis um, for this evening, for tomorrow's paper, about that. I mean, as I'm sure everyone's well aware by now, there was an attack at about three o'clock local time, or something happened to the Kirch Bridge about three o'clock local time. You know, Ukrainian security sources have told some media that it was them, but no one's claiming it officially. The Russians have blamed the Ukrainians. The damage to the bridge seems pretty bad. But the interesting thing is that you remember the last attack on, on the Kerch Bridge back in was October. That appears to have been a lorry bomb, a vehicle-borne IED, VBIED, is that what they call them? Basically a truckload with, with, with explosives detonated on the bridge. This apparently according to the claims that have been fenced into the media space by the Ukrainian secret services, involved surface drones. And that's pretty interesting. You remember there was a raid on Sevastopol Harbour some months ago involving several of these things that managed to penetrate Sevastopol Harbour, which was a big thing, and damage some Russian ships. And we had a we talked at the time about what that meant for naval warfare and uh, you know, I, I spoke to a couple of people, naval analysts, you know, retired Royal Navy senior officers who said, look, this is this is a real, might not have been that dramatic, but that moment was, will go down in history as the first kind of mass use of surface drones 
to attack to attack a harbour, to attack a fleet, and it's something that navies have been waiting for for a long time. So if it's true that they've managed it again, and they've gone all the way around Crimea and managed to get these things straight up into the Kerch Strait, which is meant to be very well protected, and they've managed to cause so much damage to the bridge that they've you know knocked over one lane of the of the highway, it's it's another indication that these really are these are serious things. They're quite a capability, and while you know Ukraine might not be able to churn out hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them in short order, it can still do damage with them, and certain other countries will be able to do that. So that is likely to have an impact on on naval warfare in the future. Thank you very much, Roland. Let's go back to James Kilner. There are some other updates on the ongoing Ukrainian counteroffensive that would be quite good to talk through. Let's start there, James. Right. So the update from last night uh, was that Vladimir Putin was uh, he, he actually gave an interview. The, the interview was actually recorded on Thursday evening, but it was released by state Russian state media uh, last night. And in it, he said that the uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive had completely failed. And he said that Russian soldiers were fighting heroically to repel Ukraine, Ukrainian soldiers and had even taken back land and taken uh, recaptured advantageous positions in high buildings on uh, hills, etc. There's a couple of things to unpick here. At the same time, a few hours later, uh, the Ukrainian deputy defence minister came on and said that fighting in some on some sections of the front line had been incredibly intense. And she was talking about around a town called Kupiansk, and she said that various positions had changed hands several times and uh, it, it was absolutely fierce. Now, when the Ukrainians are saying this about this current war, that means it is a dreadful situation. As she said, further south in the southern fringes of Bakhmut, Ukrainian forces were again continuing to, to, to make decent ground. Now, I, th- I think with, with it's accurate information of, from, from the front line is very hard to come by. We do know for sure that the counteroffensive hasn't been as swift as Ukrainian commanders had initially hoped, but they have definitely taken some ground. We do know that well-prepared, well-dug-in, well-briefed Russian defenders have also put up much tougher resistance. These, the, you know, The Russians had time to dig miles of trenches and so acres of, of uh, landmines. And they've also, they've also adhered to a strict um, defensive doctrine where they counterattack very quickly. They don't allow Ukrainians to, to, to develop a foothold when, when they take ground. Um, so, so it has been very tough. But I think we need to consider Putin's assessment in, in context. He, he's um, increasingly isolated, increasingly paranoid, commander-in-chief, especially since the failed Wagner rebellion three and a half weeks ago. He, according to Alan Spinkley, he is briefed by a small group of people who are still too scared to give him the real pitch on the ground. This has been um, this this has been blamed for the reasons why he for, for the main reason why he gave the 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 order. One of the main reasons, rather, to why he invaded him on February twenty fourth last year, because he was given false information or information that he, he was manipulated. Uh, to be what he wanted to hear, he was told that Ukraine would would fold, that people would would, would greet him as a conquering hero, etc. That didn't happen, and so analysts have said he is still getting battlefield reports from sycophantic officials who want to please him rather than give him the real picture. So he may actually really believe that the Ukrainian um, counteroffensive has been utterly repulsed and has utterly failed, or he may be spinning a lie. 
but um, that context is important. So there's that. Another important uh, Battlefield update that we wrote up on Friday evening, published in Saturday's newspaper, was, a, was an intelligence briefing from the Estonian military intelligence um, department, which is, which is quite public about how they see things, has its own views. And their view was that the the, the pressure that the Ukrainian counterfeiters is beginning to bear on the Russian front line may make it crack. It said this because of uh, the rebellion for one, uh, the purge of the generals and the uh, reports of utterly demoralized Russian soldiers. We do also know that Russian soldiers are not rotated out, so they're never rested. So you may have mobilized men who were drafted into the Russian army at the end of September last year who haven't had a proper break. They may have received a little bit of training and then told to dig trenches and they've been sitting there the whole time waiting to be attacked. This is a sort of army that the Ukrainians are now fighting against. They're, they are able to defend. They're a defensive army now, mainly the, the, the Russians. But they are considered, if you can get through their fields of landmines and up into their trenches, they are considered potentially brittle. So that was the point the Estonian uh, intelligence were, were trying to make on Friday. Thank you very much, Roland and James, for your updates there. Can I go to our senior technology reporter, Gareth Caulfield? Gareth, you've written up quite a few stories for the paper and online on the war. Can we start with your article on Starlink? Essentially, you've been looking at the fact that Starlink terminals may be more vulnerable than people thought. David, yes, thank you. So the Starlink story, there was, so this is a, essentially, this is a security warning from the Ukrainian government's uh, IT department, in effect, the um, Computer Emergency Response Team of Ukraine, as they call themselves. These guys put out a warning last week to the Ukrainian armed forces and more broadly all parts of Ukrainian society involved in the war against Russia, telling them that Starlink represented a potential risk to their IT security. Now, what this means is that, sort of reading between the lines of of this, this report, and I've spoken to a couple of IT experts as well who have taken a look at this with a a critical and informed eye. What it means is that the increased risk that the Ukrainians are referring to probably stems from the use of Starlink being outside of what you might call the Ukrainian military's corporate IT network. Now that sounds possibly a bit bit of a sort of head-scratcher, a bit boring. What it is, the Ukrainian military IT system is obviously a, a secure network. It's defended by you know, the very best in Ukraine and some of the, the brighter minds in the Western cybersecurity world. And obviously that is set up to resist some of the, you know, the most potent cybersecurity techniques that the Russians are able to deploy against it. However, and now this is speculation I should, I should separate out here, but the informed thinking is that the use of Starlink terminals remotely, uh, wherever you can set them up to, to maintain your battlefield communications and so on, may be taking place outside of the what you might call the IT security perimeter of the Ukrainian army's IT networks. So what that means is the uh, the warning's gone out from the CERT Ukraine, that's the, the IT security guys, the warning's gone out to say, we like what you're doing, it's great, but if you are using Starlink, be aware you are at increased risk from hackers from Russian-aligned cyber forces, to put that term nice and broadly. And there's actually a little slightly sideways look at that, which came in the same warning there, which I didn't get space to, to put into the paper or online, but I can mention here, is that at the same time as the certain Ukraine issued this warning about Starlink posing a potential threat to communication security if it is used unsafely, 
They also said there was a group of turncoat spies operating from Crimea, former Ukrainian state special service officers who had, quote, betrayed their military oaths, unquote, to serve Russia. And these are the guys who are said to be specifically looking at targeting Starlink, at breaking into Starlink and targeting those Ukrainian military members and sort of military support forces who are also using Starlink as a means of remote and straightforward connectivity. Now, this might come across, and the mainstream view, if you will, this might come across as the Ukrainians saying Starlink is insecure. That's not quite the case. What we're talking about here is a difference between, to pick an example, using using a public Wi-Fi network in a cafe versus using your employer's corporate VPN, which secures your traffic from, from hackers and unauthorized snooping, right? Conceptually, this is the difference between the two. The Ukrainians are saying, Starlink, it works, but there are greater risks involved with using Starlink, and you need to be aware of that. Now, the way they're raising awareness about that is they're telling the, the uh, Ukrainian military to install endpoint detection response software, or EDR software, as the cybersecurity world calls it, uh, that EDR software, you can think of it as specialised antivirus. What it does, it alerts the uh, the people running the network that the, the computer or phone or tablet or whatever is connected to if it detects any kind of ongoing hack attempt or attempts to steal data or plant malicious software on that particular device. So, yeah, that's the, that's the Starlink story, is there are risks involved in using it. Those risks are comparable, as I say, to using... Uh, public Wi-Fi versus using a secured communication somewhere where you know you've got a a full IT department looking over your shoulder and keeping an eye on things to make sure that nothing bad happens and you don't get hacked. So that's where we're at, David. Thanks, Gareth. Let's let's leave Ukraine and look at Russia because Ukraine is not the only place where the digital defences are are fraying slightly. You've written a really interesting piece on on Russia's digital firewall against against the West and against Ukraine and how there are breaches and how also how those breaches are impacting Russia's economy. Can you talk us through your thinking? Yes. So over the last sort of 12 or 18 months, although a lot of the the cybersecurity world has been focusing on what Russia's doing, I mean, those those uh, listeners who've been with us since the start will recall there are all sorts of apocalyptic talk about cyber warfare and pressing the the equivalent of the big red nuclear button to, to bring everything to a grinding halt through cyber attack techniques. And of course, none of that ever came to pass. But what has been happening, in, almost unremarked upon until fairly recently, is that an increasing number of cyber attacks have been taking place within Russia, targeting Russian companies. Now, this is, a, as I say, an unexplored area, but it's really fascinating because We've seen the, uh, so I've, I've written about this, and uh, the, the title of the piece and a little bit of a self-promotion here is Inside the Murky World Accelerating Russia's Economic Meltdown. But it, the focus is, is mainly cyber, as I say. Now, the interesting thing is the estimates from you know, the, the, the OECD, the World Bank and EU and others all say that there's going to be a, an a economic contraction of anything up to, in the worst case scenario, 2.5% in Russia. Uh, as a direct result of the Ukrainian war and the sanctions and all the ongoing effects of those. And part of that, that sort of multi-billion pound GBP hit to Russia is the effect of these cyber attacks. And you know, some of these look fairly low-level, low mundane. I mean, you know, those of us who've, who've seen the news in the West will inevitably see that there's always a company in the news for some kind of cyber attack or cyber weakness. Exactly the same applies to Russia. At the beginning of this month, to give you a worked example here, the Russian state railways suffered a quite widespread cyber attack, which completely banjaxed their digital ticketing uh, ability. 
Now, I gather that in Russia, the majority of railway travel is, is done, much as it is in the UK, with you know, a mobile app. You buy your tickets online, you show your scannable QR code or whatever to the ticket inspector or the automatic barriers. So you can imagine the chaos where the entire state railway network goes down and people are left queuing to buy manual paper tickets. I mean, you know, that kind of economic disruption, it's, it's very visible, it's immediate, it's annoying. It has an effect on businesses as well, because instead of employees being at their places of work, they're stuck queuing for tickets, trying to persuade ticket inspectors that they're not fair dodgers that day. You know, that's, just, that's one example there. We have others as well. I mean, the, the other type of cyber attacks going on, the, the, the start of my feature actually uh, talks about a deep fake of Putin, which uh, I think we... We wrote extensively about back in April. But states' TV and radio networks were compromised by unknown hackers to put up a deep fake of Putin's face for TV and voice also for, for radio and, and, and voice mediums, declaring that martial law was being enforced, that Ukraine had turned the tide and started invading Russia. Uh, you know, of course, this is all fake news, but it's another example of those kind of ongoing low-level cyber attacks that are nonetheless destabilizing the Ukrainian economy and bringing home to the Russian population that actually, yes, there is a war going on. It's not just the, you know, the official special military operation, that there are very real side effects on Russia domestically today. And indeed, speaking about the, the wider world perspective, earlier, no, tail end of last month, the, the Russians actually tested their so-called great file, or not great firewall, Digital Iron Curtain. So I'm going to mix up with the Chinese version there. The Digital Iron Curtain. So this is the, the Russian RUNET response to all these ongoing cyber attacks targeting businesses and industries. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very simple project. The Russians basically want to disconnect the entire country from the wider internet. This has a twofold effect. Number one, it shuts out external sources of information from the local population. So they're all reliant on Russian Pravda and other such well-known sources of truth and uh, objective reporting. And it also prevents cyber attackers from being able to access the Russian internet to target companies, IT infrastructure, individuals even for that matter, and stop them seeding ransomware attacks and so on. And I might come to ransomware attacks in a bit as I, as I talk here. But the RUNET test, now we, we only have some sort of scattered data points on this to rely on. We have the statement from Roskobnadzor, which is effectively the Russian version of Ofcom in the UK, the sort of TV and internet regulator. Uh, Roskomnadzor said the test was successful. We know that in the past, attempts to disconnect Russia from the internet and to switch on the, the walled garden runet were not successful. So the fact that they're coming out and saying it worked, possibly that's, that's an indication that it actually went to plan this time. And the other thing we have is some sort of internet architecture stuff. Now, the... Um, network of servers that, that connects to each other, which forms the backbone of the internet. Their uptime can be seen and monitored by, uh, should we say, very online people and technical experts and so on. And a large number of Russian autonomous systems, as we call these servers, large number of, of Russian autonomous systems went inaccessible at about the same time that Roskomnadzor said that the successful RUNET test had been carried out. So the evidence is that the Russians are starting to respond to the increasing volume of cyber attacks within their country by trying to shut themselves off from the outside world in the belief that this is, a, this is the way to, to cut it down, to stop the West interfering, and also to stop Western information sources leaking into Russia and spreading the truth about what they're doing in Ukraine. The, um, I, I mentioned briefly earlier uh, um, uh, ransomware attacks and other such cyber attacks. 
Traditionally, Western thinking it was that the Russians are the instigators of ransomware attacks and that ransomware attacks are mainly deployed by Russian gangs or Russian-speaking gangs against the West. Now, in researching the, the feature, um, detailing all the ongoing attacks within Russia, I actually noticed that a large amount of Russian-origin ransomware is being deployed within Russia seemingly by some Russian-speaking cyber criminals, as you call them, um, themselves. Now, we spoke to Kaspersky Lab. Kaspersky may be familiar to our listeners as an antivirus brand here in the West, a bit controversial nowadays for the obvious reason. Uh, within Russia, they still have a substantial presence. Um, and Kaspersky said that they are seeing attempts by Russian companies to seek help to recover from ransomware attacks absolutely surging. I mean, they're saying that in the first month of this year alone, the volume of help requests to unscramble files from ransomware attacks uh, exceeded the, the, the number for the entire three-month period preceding that, um, which is a huge increase and really does show that whatever's happening within Russia right now, it's disruptive, it's destabilizing, and it is something ultimately that the country's economy is going to struggle to cope with. I mean, just taking a sort of wider, slightly philosophical look at this one, if you were to, you know, if you were the Russian government, you implemented the RuNet, you pulled the plug and shut off Russia's internet from the rest of the world, all your local ransomware gangs are suddenly you know, find it much more difficult to, um, I wouldn't say impossible, but difficult to continue their campaign of attacks and thefts against the West. What are they going to do? Naturally enough, they're going to start turning against the targets that are within reach, which would be all of these Russian companies already reeling under these potentially West-affiliated or Ukraine-affiliated or directed attacks. So I think that the RuNet implementation as a response to these streams of Russian attack, uh, streams of cyber attacks within Russia, could actually backfire on them quite significantly. So yes, David, that's that's my uh, rather rambling run around the the cyber war within Russia and how it's destabilizing their economy. Thank you very much, Gareth. That was absolutely fascinating. And please, please, it was, it was great to get all of your thoughts on that. I think there's there's a lot to, to chew on and to get through there. Before we end, I'd just like to ask Roland and James. I mean, we've we've been bringing updates from the counteroffensive as, as well as we can do for several weeks, a month now. And it's always very, very difficult. The fog of war is intense. It's hard to say. It's often hard to say exactly what we think is going on. Do either of you think, and maybe not, of course, we're in a better position now? And if so, would you give us as would you give us a sense of what you think the narrative or the story has been over the past four weeks and more of the counteroffensive? What what can we say has happened, uh, and where are we? Well, I'm not sure we are in in much better place. I'm I'm quite conservative about comments about the counteroffensive. I think. I think probably it's safe to say it has gone slower than we thought it would or that the Ukrainians hoped it would. I think it's clear that Russian defensive tactics have been effective, especially in the south, especially their use of minefields. And that is pretty much confirmed by narratives on both sides. But the big question to me is, can Ukraine achieve the tipping point? Because it, you know, when you when you talk to people who know a little bit about this, they they will say things like, "Look, the the first half of this offensive was was always going to be very bloody and very slow because of you know the nature of the fighting, because Ukraine doesn't have air superiority, because it's the the Russians are really really seriously dug in in these three extremely well fortified defensive lines. The theory was that the Ukrainians would reach those lines, eventually penetrate them, and that would be the tipping point." 
where they can somehow achieve a breakthrough and 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 that might be the point where perhaps russian defenses collapse now it, it's not clear to me whether that's going to happen i don't know tomorrow or the next day or in the six weeks for that to happen that to me is still the big question and i feel like ukrainian in particular kind of message discipline radio silence around what's actually going on the ground makes it very difficult to to make an assessment of the progress and for obvious reasons one has to be treat the the usual sources the kind of russian the telegram channels the rebars and and gray zones of this world with a, a, a healthy bucket of salt because although they have been on occasion they they have they do have a certain record of 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 reliability at the end of the day of propaganda channels at the end of the day they're curated as well like the idea that telegram is a completely free and uncurated information space maybe it was one day <laughs> but but not anymore so that that's my feeling I'm, I'm sorry if that doesn't shed a huge amount of light on on the state of play thank you very much roland before we go to our final thoughts james kilner would you like to add anything to that i think roland summed it up very well just just to add that there was a, a piece of information from new york times at the weekend which highlighted the intensity of the fighting um, along the front line, and I think it's absolutely brutal by all accounts. They, uh, the New York Times reported that in the first two weeks of the offensive, the counteroffensive, which has now been running for a couple of months or six weeks, we'll say, depending on when when you judge it started. The first two weeks of the offensive, Ukraine lost twenty percent of the equipment that it threw into battles, which is a huge attrition rate. Um, it just shows shows the level of fighting. Obviously, with the US now giving the green light to send cluster munitions to Ukraine, that has been partly driven by the fact it just can't supply enough shells, artillery shells, for battle. So it's had to fall back on on cluster munitions, uh, which uh, the the Russians were already using. Putin claims that um, he's only he's only given the go ahead to use cluster munitions by Russian forces now uh, as a mirror. Uh, action for 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 creating the US, but that's not true. They've been using them for for throughout. Thank you very much, Roland and James, for that. Uh, let's go to our final thoughts. Gareth, would you like to start? I certainly can. It's a, may, may feel a bit a bit too light hearted after <laughs> after after the the very serious updates. But Russia has uh, also launched a state approved rival to Wikipedia. It is called uh, RuWiki, very imaginatively, and it's run by the former head of Russian Wikipedia. I had a quick browse of it. You can find nothing on there about the invasion of Ukraine or indeed anything to do with Wagner. So just another sign of how Russia is cracking down on sources of free information, even literally free information such as that from Wikipedia, which is, of course, written by by volunteers for for their own uh, entertainment, you might say. Thank you, Gareth. Roland Oliphant. I just say today is the 17th of July, which marks nine years since the Russians shot down flight MH17. Um, I'm sure all the re- listeners are familiar with the story. 298 people killed, civilians scattered over eastern Ukraine. You know, it, it wasn't the first crime, and it certainly hasn't been the last, and, and, and worse things have been committed since. But today is a day that, well, I always take a moment anyway. Thank you, Gareth and Roland. James Kilmer. As for final thoughts, I will be looking at well, I'll be looking out for this meeting Putin's holding at uh, 7 p.m. Moscow time, 5 o'clock in the UK. That's in response to the Crimea Bridge alleged attack. 
saying what, what he's going to say. He came up very strongly last October, promised lots of repercussions. Uh, I think there was an increase in missile attacks in Ukraine after that. But uh, let's see what he does this time. Beyond that, I will be looking at um, the behaviour of the Wagner mercenaries in, in Belarus. I think how they behave and, and how they sort of intimidate neighbours, etc., is is really important to monitor. There was a there was a, a story, not a story. There was a note on a Wagner-affiliated Telegram channel over the weekend. And if if you remember, if well, Telegraph readers remember. I wrote about this new Wagner commander that Putin named on Friday called Greyhead. And he, Putin named him as the real Wagner military commander, hard-drinking, hard-nosed ex-Russian artillery colonel. But at the weekend, there were some Wagner channels who were actually seriously unhappy about this. And these were quite well-followed, quite well-respected within the Wagner community channels. And they were saying things like, um, and I quote, it's the agony of short, of short-sighted and stupid people who have not, not, not understood what makes us strong who call grey-haired our commander. So, I mean, this is very mutinous speak. Obviously, these are just rumblings, etc. But really important to monitor how and what they do now they've moved into their camps in, in Belarus. So there's that. And obviously, I'm going to be keeping a very close eye on this story about the Russian generals being sacked for speaking out against the Russian Ministry of Defence and also how that impacts morale on the front line. It's very, very difficult to ascertain what's going on. Like I said, there were rumours over the weekend that a couple of very senior, uh, well-respected paratroop generals had been sacked for insubordination. But we haven't been able to report it fully because these are rumours and... We're not in the business of spreading them unless we can authenticate them as, as strongly as possible. So that's what I'll be watching out for, David. Thanks very much for having me on. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message and you can contact us directly on Twitter you can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.